homage to the Buddha, homage to the Dharma, homage to the Sangha. Good morning. It's very sweet being in this space. My name is Gyokako. I was once abbot in this place. I have spent a lifetime meditating in this space. I want to introduce you this morning to a Mahayana Sutra that is special to me and yet, uh, and it's important in the Mahayana traditions, and yet um, most Zen practitioners I know can't stand it. <laughs> it's, um, it's over the top. And uh, yet I find it, um, it's over the top in terms of ornamentation. It is repetitive. It is, um, well, I'll, I'll tell you something. It's, it's called the uh, 10 stages of a bodhisattva or dasabhumaka. And each of the 10 stages is described in such uh, glorious terms that none of us made of flesh could really aspire to embody that. And yet it talks about um, at each of these stages, it gets better and then it gets better and then it gets better. And each of them is perfect. Each of the beings in these stages are perfect, but they get better. Go figure. <laughs> but um, I find that reading it, especially reading it aloud, I was telling Sakala that I like reading it aloud because uh, it, does, it keeps me from skimming, which is one of my things. And then it becomes a meditative practice and an aspirational practice and um, an inspirational practice. And at some point it just becomes practice with, without much characteristic, it just is. But there's also some substance in this that is really informative. The first stage of the Dasabhumaka is joy. And I, I have a history of depression. So to start at joy is a joy all by itself. And the joy, if you drill down into this, the joy is discovering that practice exists and it's accessible. And when, when that thought comes to you, that this practice 
is right there for you, that you can access it, you can do it. There is joy in that. I hope you all know that joy. And it's described in a way that just coming into contact with the Dharma, the Buddha, the Sangha, suddenly opens you up to perfection. And there, there you are, you have cultivated this and you are perfect exactly as you are in glorious, radiant terms. And then there's another stage. <laughs> and the next stage is called purity. And purity in English, I think, and, and just in its essence, uh, implies the possibility of impurity. So all of a sudden we've got a duality coming up. And yet the description of someone who is practicing in the realm of purity is perfect and glorious and grand and And what it comes down to in this second stage is precepts, discovering, practicing, becoming comfortable with the precepts. And in this, this section, it says that of all of the the precepts, all of the practices that are important for a bodhisattva to practice and to come into harmony with, the most important is speech. Now, what I can tell you about my relationship with speech is I grew up in a household where uh, we were expected to use perfect grammar. And we were expected to use full sentences and we were expected to use appropriate vocabulary to whatever we were speaking about. And that level of perfection, the purity of the English language, if you will, led to a kind of paralysis for me conversation would be happening, a question would be asked. I would form a sentence in my head and parse it out and complete it. And by the time I had that done, the conversation had taken off and gone somewhere else. So I spent a large part of my growing up being silent, <laughs> but there was conversation happening in my head regardless. But one of the things that happened with all of that is a habit of criticizing myself inside my own head for not being fast enough, not being clever enough, not being whatever. As I have hopefully matured in my practice, I have discovered that embracing the imperfection of my speech is part of embracing the purity of my speech. To be able to speak 
well is to speak in a timely manner as well as a well-constructed manner. It is important to be kind, but it is also important to be spontaneous. I'm gonna bore you just to give you an illustration of what, what this over-the-top sutra says. Enlightening beings, that is to say bodhisattvas, people who are aspiring to be Buddhas or aspiring to be bodhisattvas, enlightening beings also abandon malicious talk and are not divisive or annoying to sentient beings. They do not gossip or tell tales here and there to cause division. They do not break up those who are together or increase the division of those already split. They do not enjoy disunion, do not delight in separation, do not speak words that cause division, whether they are true or not. Remember that piece. The enlightening beings also abandon coarse speech and give up speech that is out of place, crude, dirty, harsh to others, openly or covertly annoying to others, vulgar, worldly, or impure, unpleasant to hear, provocative, irritating, outrageous, displeasing, disagreeable, unpleasant, destructive to self or others. Having given up such speech, the enlightening beings speak words that are unabrasive and gentle, agreeable, sweet, causing pleasure, delightful, beneficial, pure, pleasant to the ears, congenial, likable, elegant, clear, understandable, worth hearing, not mixed up, desirable to many people, liked by many people, pleasing to many people, agreeable to many people, enlightening, beneficial, and pleasurable to all beings, mentally uplifting, purifying self and others. Enlightening, enlightening beings also abandon useless speech. They speak prudently in accord with time, truthfully, meaningfully, rightly, logistically, instructively. They speak words with content, carefully considering and guarding their speech in accord with the occasion. Well-regulated order reflecting even before telling a joke. And never, of course, chattering at random. So reading that, I find it telling to that piece of myself that got so caught up in speaking perfectly that even while the sutra is enjoining me to speak perfectly all the time and think carefully and be considerate and be kind and be generous and be sober and meaningful and, and all of that, I can still tell a joke. <laughs> Which suggests that 
although we are enjoined to aspire to be better, we are not enjoined to be perfect and grim and sober and suppress our natural willingness to make a spontaneous connection and to risk making a mistake. It is more important, I think, from my point of view, that we be willing to interact with our fellow practitioners, with people out on the street, with our relatives, and with people that disagree with us, than to be some kind of a, a model practitioner, like a stone statue. We need to be human and accept our humanness and still keep our aspirations alive. The, the way this has come down into Zen uh, is we talk about uh, the four methods for a bodhisattva to instruct beings. So it's um, beneficial action, kind action, forget the third one, and sympathetic action. And we are told that kind words are one of the most potent ways we have of helping others. But if you set up the ideal that you are only going to speak kind words, you end up sometimes not, not giving a correction where it really needs to happen. So the, the criticism that we make of another person can go through the same kind of filtering that this sutra is talking about where we get sober and we think about it and we, we phrase it exactly perfectly. And the fact is, it's not always going to land in a way that we like. But our practice, if we can embrace our humanity in this, if we can really notice that we are imperfect and that we are trying perfectly, then we can actually digest, accept the consequences of our efforts and take that in 
and learn from it and maybe do better next time, maybe not, maybe try something different and maybe fall on our faces again. It's okay. And part of the reason it's okay is that that criticism or that correction or that, um, that failure in a certain circumstance when we're dealing with another person is exactly what we need to be doing internally with ourselves. What goes on in your head when you think about an interaction that didn't go well? Do you speak kind words to that person who didn't do so well that time? Can you be generous? Can you make a joke? Can you be flexible? Can you take it in? These ways of benefiting other beings are the same ways that we need to be reflecting and dealing with this this being that also needs correction sometimes and also needs kind words and also needs pats on the head and gentleness and pleasing words. Those of us who grew up in Christian churches, and I've run into this with people who grew up um, with a Jewish background too, is that there is a strong uh, tendency to teach not to be proud of yourself, to not be arrogant, not not puff yourself up. Well, there's there's a time and a place for puffing yourself up. And there's a time and a place for really absorbing. I screwed up and I really hurt somebody. And, and I feel shame about that. But also to to take that in and be kind at the same time, that's an art that I hope we are all cultivating. And when somebody does something to us that is hurtful and harmful and reprehensible, even as we react appropriately to that hurt and remonstrate or distance ourselves or whatever we need to do, there is also a little glimmering of kindness in the way we do that reaction to that. One of the reasons I'm bringing this up is because we are in a time of extreme division. And there is a, I know a lot of people who are addicted to their news feed, whatever their news feed is, and end up with anxiety and nightmares and, dare I say, judgmentalism about people on the other side of whatever issue you're looking at. And 
the more you allow that to color your perception of those other people, the more you are poisoning yourself. So our practice is, is both internal and it has an external component. We, we are students and we are teachers. We are practicing internal serenity and equanimity and poise and kindness and gentleness and externally we are interacting with people and trying for their sake to be kind and gentle and a calming influence and helping people find their equanimity. Sometimes the, the type of meditation that we do at my temple is called silent illumination. And it's, we have the uh, Chinese characters for silence and illumination in the meditation hall. And the silence is that equanimity, that's the calmness, the quietude. But all by itself, it's death. The illumination side is insight. It's, it's what, what happens with that internal silence and quietude and peacefulness. Once you go out the door, once you meet another person, once you start interacting in the world, how do you bring that forward and make it come alive? Silence and illumination. If you only interact in the world and don't have that stillness underneath, it gets chaotic. It's not illumination. It's just action and reaction. But the silence and illumination together, that's practice. That's wisdom. That's the fruit. And I think I'll leave it at that.